Good morning and welcome to Church at Home. Uh, my name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church here in Cape Town, South Africa. If you're with us for the first time, we're delighted you've joined us and I hope by the grace of God that our study this morning will be a blessing and an encouragement to you, even as you continue in fellowship with a local church. Now last Sunday I announced that we're delighted to, to be returning to in-person services at our church building in Weinberg on Sunday the 1st of November. And uh, let me just repeat, as I did last week, that there are two things you need to know about that. Uh, first, we're going to continue to live stream services uh, for those people who are vulnerable or who might be self-isolating. And second, because we're absolutely committed to your safety and also to uh, being in compliance with government regulations, if you are planning to join us, and we hope you are, can we ask you please to fill out and submit the form that you can download from the homepage on our website, uh, which you can find at www sbbc.org.za and if you could fill out one form for each person who's attending and send that to us that will ensure that we are fully compliant and properly prepared. Well as you've already heard our Bible reading is Mark chapter 9 and it would be a great help to me if you would have your Bible open uh, at that passage beginning at verse 14 and uh, as we begin I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Mark chapter 9 and uh, won't you bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that if we are to hear your voice this morning, we are fully dependent on your Holy Spirit. So please draw near to us and open our minds to understand your truth, to change our affections, that we might treasure it, and please change our wills to obey it we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the theme of our passage and therefore our theme this morning is uh, all about learning dependence. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's God's wisdom to teach us to depend on him. And uh, sometimes he does that by bringing difficulties into our lives so that we have no option but to lean on him. Sometimes he closes down all the other options we think we might have so that once again we have to turn to him. We have no help but him. And uh, when that happens we learn to put our confidence in him and we do find each time that he is absolutely trustworthy. So that's what we're thinking about this morning. Now, of course from childhood we're trained to become independent. Uh, that's very necessary it's natural, it's wonderful, uh, there is a part of us that does need to be independent. But uh, there's another part of us where independence is actually dangerous. And independence from God is the greatest danger of all. Now where are we in our series in Mark's Gospel? Well we've reached the point in Mark chapter 9 where the disciples of Jesus are battling with trust issues themselves. And the reason that they're grappling with trust issues is that it's not been difficult for them to trust a powerful Messiah. Uh, they've been with this powerful Messiah, the Lord Jesus, for quite some time. But now they're being asked to trust a dying Messiah. Uh, Jesus is telling them that he's going to die. 
and the reason that he's about to die is because he's going to pay for sin and the reason that he's going to pay for sin is that we have no alternative unless we pay for it ourselves so Jesus is planning to die and uh, it's difficult for the disciples to trust a dying Messiah of course the final destination for all disciples is going to be very wonderful Uh, so last week we saw Jesus taking three of the disciples up a mountain and giving them this this marvellous preview of the glory that awaits every Christian that's going to be wonderful but the immediate future for disciples is difficult because it's following a Messiah who's going to die and then it's taking up the cross of discipleship ourselves well here in chapter 9 we have a man with a very serious problem with his son and uh, this man is also struggling to believe and what happens here is a lesson for the disciples about trusting and it's a lesson for you and me as well because the man here learns that trusting Jesus is a very wise thing to do and it's also a very effective thing to do but holding back from trusting Jesus is a very foolish thing to do so this morning instead of going through the passage verse by verse I want to try and draw out three important lessons the first is that there is a serious problem you see fundamental to knowing that we should trust Jesus is knowing that there is a serious problem Uh, we're not going to go anywhere near Jesus until we know that there actually is a serious problem the second thing that emerges from the passage is that this father is being taught that all other options are dead ends and that you and I need to learn that when it comes to salvation all the other options are dead ends and then the third thing we learn in this section is that when the father puts his faith in Jesus which he struggles to do it turns out to be wise and wonderful so we're going to be thinking about those three things and I wonder whether for you this morning you haven't got to the point where there's a certain issue or perhaps several issues which you know are totally beyond you all the other options for solving it aren't working and you're being taught slowly but surely that you've got to come to Jesus Christ in humility and in confidence and look to him for the resources you need and I wonder also if we're not being taught this as a church family uh, that advancing the gospel in Cape Town is utterly beyond us and we need to look to Jesus (coughs) with fresh dependence and with fresh trust so firstly then first thing to learn this morning is that God teaches genuine need God teaches genuine need you see the father here has a demon possessed son Uh, I guess if we could spend some time in his home we would see how awful that situation was it would be utterly exhausting and I guess rather frightening look for example at verse 25 in chapter 9 Jesus describes this boy as both deaf and dumb so it doesn't matter what the father says to the boy he can't hear it and the boy can't communicate anything to the father so here we have a relationship of non-communication 
And it's not just a physical problem, it's also a spiritual problem. Uh, At the beginning of the passage we're told quite specifically that the boy has an evil spirit. In verse 22 we're told that the effect is terrifying because the demon is causing the boy to dive into fire or water because he wants to kill him. And then in verse 21 we're told this has been going on for some time. Uh, We don't know how old the boy is at this point but however old he is this has been going on since childhood and that kind of suggests he's not a child any longer so maybe at this point he's a teenager and I guess if you're a parent you can imagine can't you the trauma of trying to protect a child like this Uh, there's no communication the symptoms are terrifying and every hour of every day there's the possibility that he's going to fall into something that's going to prove fatal. And every parent can imagine that to live like this would actually drive you to your wit's end. Now friends, I think we would make a foolish mistake this morning if we dismiss the details of this uh, as if it were way beyond anything that you and I might ourselves experience. Because the principles in this event are absolutely yours and mine as well. And I want to try and show that to you. First, please notice that Jesus has left the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, I guess we could say that he's now back in the real world. So you'll remember that uh, in the Old Testament, uh, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he came into an absolute disaster at the bottom of the mountain. And Jesus also comes down from the mountain to an absolute disaster. Now, we might not be facing exactly the same situation, but we certainly can't accuse Jesus of living in some kind of remote, sanitised world, far removed from the hard things of life. Jesus is very much in the real world. So, when you and I read the news feed every morning and we, we pick up the endless stream of horrible things going on in the world that is the world that Jesus understands it doesn't shock him to walk into any street in any city and see what's going on he knows all about it already the second thing is that although the spiritual battle is very obvious here it doesn't mean that the spiritual battle is not real everywhere I guess there are certain advantages when it's obvious because everybody knows what's really happening. But let me ask you this. Do you think that the spiritual battle is non-existent when, for example, uh, your son or daughter or best friend is doing really, really well at school? Uh, They're in all the sports teams. They're planning to go to university. Do you think there is no spiritual battle in that situation? You see, I think in that example it's very tempting, isn't it, for parents to say to to oneself, well, you know, this is what life's all about. Uh, My child is doing terrifically well, they're planning great things. But can I say that if there's no turning to or interest in or following of Jesus Christ, well, the spiritual battle is a very real situation, isn't it? Well, in this passage, it's very striking that the father says to Jesus that the evil spirit is trying to kill his son. 
And wherever the devil is doing a destructive work in someone's spiritual life, there's a destruction going on that is far more serious than any other. But very interestingly, the people closest to them can't always see it. I guess sometimes they can. Uh, So, for example, I'm thinking of one particular Christian family. Uh, The parents are serving in key ministries. But some years ago, their son turned away from Christ and is living a lifestyle that is expressly forbidden by Almighty God. Now, I guess that for many parents in that situation, um, their main concern might be the shame of it. Uh, What will other people say? They might perhaps take it very personally or even be rather angry about it. But not these particular parents. No, they recognise that there's a very real spiritual battle going on. And that's reflected both in their praying and in their very loving attitude towards their son. Well then the third thing in our passage, which is really the main point, is that the father here is completely out of his depth. He's utterly helpless. And that this is something that we desperately need to hear ourselves. We are out of our depth in so many ways, aren't we? We're out of our depth personally. We're out of our depth corporately. Because by our own efforts we can't advance the gospel either individually or as a church. So just consider this with me for a moment. Uh, So far the coronavirus has not been anything like as severe in Cape Town as many people first expected. God has been very kind to us. But we have to say, don't we, that the result of his kindness has not been that large numbers of people have turned to God and said we're so grateful and that we're going to be even more devoted to him than we were before. No, rather the truth is that the majority of people in our city are just as complacent and just as spiritually foolish as they were before. In fact, we might say that as a city, we are deaf and dumb, just like the boy in this passage. We're deaf to the word of God, and we're dumb in our praise. So can you see that the spiritual battle that we're reading about here is very real for us? And God tells us that our need is very great. That, of course, is why most of you listening to this have already put your faith in Jesus because you've learned that uh, a day is coming when you're going to stand face to face with the judge of all the earth, uh, that your sins are not going to be quietly swept under the carpet. No, they're going to have to be dealt with. And you've realised that before you meet the judge of all the earth, that you must turn to the Saviour and ask for forgiveness so that you can meet the judge without fault and with great joy. So, uh, read the early chapters of Romans and there you'll see that God is at pains to show us that there's nobody in the world who has an excuse. We've all been given enough information to seek him and to find him. So our spiritual problems are very, very real. And you see, friends, that's why God so often turns our lives of ease into dis-ease 
or into trouble. And it's not because he doesn't love us, but because by nature we'll go in almost any direction except towards him. So he sometimes brings us back to himself the hard way. And when we've learned that we're frail and mortal and helpless and sinful, well then we will turn to Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing this morning. There is a serious need and God teaches us that we have a serious need. The second thing that God teaches is that all other roads are dead ends. All other roads are dead ends. Now I don't notice, I don't know if you, you realised as we read the passage, but it seems pretty clear that the father here has obviously tried a number of options for getting his son healed. I guess the first is the boy himself. Uh, the father's been waiting for some time, no doubt hoping that the boy would come right in the end, uh, that he might, as we would say, snap out of it. It's obvious from verse 21 and 22 that the, the boy's been fighting under the influence of this demonic spirit for years, began in childhood, he's now a bit older, but with the passing of all the years, absolutely nothing has changed. And I guess another dead end may have been the father looking for other adult helpers. Uh, I think it's inconceivable that a father who cares as much as this man does would not already have tried to find someone with relevant expertise to help his son. Now that might explain the large crowd in verse 14. It seems, doesn't it, that everyone knew about this man and his son and the problem. The text doesn't actually say that explicitly, but I think it's possible that some of them had already tried to help. But obviously that had been a dead end as well. Then a third dead end for this man is the disciples. Because the man comes to Jesus in verse 18, and he says, I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. Now, asking the disciples to solve the demonic problem was very understandable because on a previous uh, occasion, the disciples had been given authority to drive out demons and they'd actually done it. So we're told in chapter 6 that for a specific mission, Jesus gave the disciples authority to deal with evil spirits and they'd done so successfully. But you see, Jesus hadn't given them superhuman powers that would be available for them to use without reference to him. Now again, I think this is such an important issue because it's not one of our greatest mistakes as Christians that we sometimes forget that we don't have all the resources we need in order to help other people. So for example, we don't always pray as we should. And is it not also true that when we look to other Christians to solve problems in our lives that only Jesus can solve, that we're going to be desperately disappointed? And then lastly, this man thinks he's run into another dead end because he's not actually sure that Jesus is going to be up to the job. Uh, so think about it. The boy has no answers. The father has no answers. The community has no answers. 
the disciples have no answers and now he's not even sure that Jesus has any answers either and so in verse 22 he makes what I think is a rather foolish comment to Jesus because he says if you can do something please have compassion now you might think that's a very reasonable thing to say in the circumstances but of course it's full of unbelief isn't it in fact the whole passage seems to be about unbelief that's why Jesus says in verse 19 oh unbelieving generation everyone is unbelieving Uh, the disciples don't understand properly the man doesn't understand properly the crowd, the teachers of the law well they don't understand properly so in this situation Jesus is entirely on his own and I think that's why Jesus says these very heartfelt words how long shall I stay with you? how long shall I put up with you? he really was on his own and this father in verse 22 has questioned whether Jesus has the power or the compassion to help he's not being rude Uh, he's not saying you don't but equally he's not saying I trust you he's caught somewhere between those two positions and Jesus in verse 23 challenges him and what Jesus is basically saying is the problem's not on my side I've got the power I've got the compassion the problem is on your side and I'm not sure whether you're really asking me whether you're really seeking me and so back comes the famous reply in verse 24 I do believe help me overcome my unbelief in other words Jesus I'm in between there's part of me that believes there's part of me that doesn't believe now I'd love to know at this point whether you think this man's position is an honourable one I do believe but I don't believe because I guess of course there's a part of this with which we can all sympathise every Christian listening this morning will agree that there are certain times in the Christian life when we find ourselves thinking yep I believe but I'm not very confident and John Calvin who was actually far more pastorally sensitive than many people realise says strong faith is very rare most people have little faith well okay but personally I quite like what Spurgeon says in his own sermon on this passage because he says we should not sympathise with this when a person says I sort of believe but I don't believe what they're doing is they're failing to look at the person they should be trusting (coughs) and they're failing to remember that they have no other options so there is a part of this idea that I believe but I don't believe that you and I ought not to sympathise with I think if we find this in our own hearts uh, we should challenge it Uh, we should say something like this is there anything in Jesus which is faulty? and is there anything in ourselves which is wonderful and if the answer is no and no well we should go to Jesus we should trust him so friends I'm not sure that this is really as much 
of a model response as many people think it is. Because the man is failing to appreciate the power and the compassion of Jesus and he's failing to realise he's got no other options. It's rather like the person who says, I'm an agnostic. Now that sounds very sophisticated. It sounds rather like a well thought out position. But when somebody tells us they're an agnostic, the question you and I need to ask is, okay, are you closed or are you open? Because if you're closed, you're not really an agnostic at all. All you've done is put your head in the sand. But if you're open, uh, can we say, what are you doing with this piece of information? This fact, that piece of information? And by their answer, we'll very quickly see whether there's any integrity in their agnosticism or not. Now that brings us then to the third thing in our passage this morning, which is that God teaches people to have faith in Jesus. You see, when we talk about faith in normal everyday life, we're generally thinking about someone else. So imagine for a moment that we're chatting over coffee and uh, I tell you, I'm off to the dentist this week. Uh, he's really good. I have great faith in my dentist. Now, what goes through your mind when I say that? Your mind says, well, I wonder who Simon's dentist is. I wonder why that dentist is so good. I wonder if I can get his phone number. In other words, you begin to think about the other person. Or, I might say to you something like this, that we've had a really tough week, one of the walls at our house has fallen down, but we have great faith in the builder. And in that moment, you think to yourself, well, that builder must be pretty good. I'd like to get hold of him to sort out one or two of the problems we've got with our own house at the moment. So again, your mind goes to the person I've been talking about. In other words, when we use the word faith in ordinary everyday life, we think about the object of that faith. Because, you see, faith is confidence in someone else. That's what faith is. Except in weird religious circles. So you see, if I say to you, friends, uh, you know, we're going through a bit of a hard time in our family at the moment, but we're putting our faith in Jesus. Where does your mind go at that point? Some of you will be saying, well, good for you, that's very nice for you. Because somehow, in religious circles, faith goes back to the subject instead of going on to the object. Now, I don't know why that is. But the point is, you see, that faith is not a weird mystical experience. It's working out that there's somebody out there who's more capable than you are. And you decide to trust them. So, there's a builder who can restore the fallen wall and we're going to call him because we're confident that he's a genius. And equally, there's a saviour who can forgive sins, and we're going to ask him. He's a genius. That's how faith works. And that's why I think there's nothing honourable about saying to Jesus, can you do this? Or, 
I'm struggling to trust you. What would be far more honourable would be to say something like this, I've got a serious need, but Jesus, I know that you're not only powerful, but you also have compassion and you're wise. So I'm going to lift up my voice in prayer and I'm going to ask you, I'm going to trust you. That's what faith is really all about. Well, you'll notice that Jesus deals with this man even though his prayer is utterly hopeless. I mean, it is a very strange prayer, isn't it? Uh, I believe, help my unbelief. It's like uh, ringing up the builder that I mentioned and saying, I trust you, but I don't trust you. Or ringing up the dentist and saying, um, I know you're good, but I'm not sure you're good enough. So this man's prayer, you see, is really very, very strange. But Jesus doesn't hold it against him. Verse 25. He immediately goes into action. Uh, he sees the crowd running towards them and he thinks, well, we better get on with this. So in verse 25, Jesus speaks to the evil spirit. And in verse 26, the evil spirit comes out violently. Now when the disciples asked Jesus in verse 28 why they couldn't drive out the spirit themselves, Jesus is not teaching them that uh, that's in the discipleship honours programme and we haven't got there yet. He's not doing that. No, he's teaching them, you should be looking to me. That's what he means when he says, this kind can come out only by prayer. And he's not saying you need to be an expert at prayer. He's simply saying that just as the boy's father failed to trust me with the problem, you disciples were not looking to me for the solution. In other words, the father needs to come to me and you also need to come to me. Well, I wonder whether this comes home to you and me every now and again. I wonder if it comes home to us every now and again that we just don't have the resources we need for a particular problem. And uh, then if you're anything like me, uh, you think, well, I'll try almost anything except getting down on my knees and very genuinely giving this to Jesus. So I'll make a phone call. I'll make another phone call. I'll think about it. I'll ask a friend's advice. There is something really weird, isn't there, about moving away from the one person that the matter really ought to be brought to. And I wonder whether that's true for us as a church. Because in the end, one of the great marks of faith is that we turn to Jesus Christ in prayer and we say, you are the key person we're looking to. I was reading recently that uh, in one particular African village where the, the gospel had come and brought a tremendous revival that all the members of the village would go out each day at a certain time and sit on the paths around the village. And they would sit there reading their Bible and praying. And if somebody didn't take their appointed place in the path the other villagers would say to them my friend the grass is growing on your path. Now that's a great sentence, isn't it? Because what they're saying is, the grass is growing because you're not growing. 
and you need to come back and you need to sit on the path and you need to read the word and pray in order for you to grow spiritually and we as a church need to pray we really really do because if we don't pray what we're really saying to the Lord is we've got other options but that's nonsense we don't have other options we need to come to Jesus we need to give him our praise and our prayers well all of this is in the context of trusting Jesus Christ the Messiah who's going to die on the cross and and I wonder whether that is why verse 26 has such a significant detail because after this boy was delivered from the demon isn't it unusual in verse 26 that we're told the boy looked as if he'd dropped dead but Jesus takes him by the hand and in the original language it says Jesus raised him that's resurrection language and I wonder if this very unusual detail is saying to the readers of Mark's Gospel and to you and me this morning that yes, in the short term things might look pretty difficult but in the end things are going to be very wonderful indeed and therefore we need to trust Jesus because even if in the short term there is a struggle Jesus is going to raise all his people to everlasting glory well please will you bow with me and let's pray together Heavenly Father we thank you that we have this lovely section of your word to remind us of Jesus complete mastery over a serious need we thank you for those many times when you teach us to trust you we thank you for those times when you teach us that other options are not the way and we ask that you would fill us with such confidence in the Lord Jesus in his power and compassion and his awareness of our need that we would live as those who trust in Jesus Christ every single day for it is in his name that we ask it